Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple podcast. I'm Dino Verley, founder and CEO of Project Purple, and today I'm back in the podcast studio, and I've got a special guest with us today coming to us all the way, not that far for us here in Connecticut, but maybe for our listeners out on the West Coast, but all the way from Ottawa, Canada, Dr. David Stewart, medical oncologist at the University of Ottawa. And before I, I hand this over to David, uh, I just want to give some background David trained in medical oncology in the Department of De Developmental Therapeutics at MD Anderson in Houston, Texas from 76 to 78. He was on staff at MD Anderson from 78 to 80, and then in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada from 80 to 2003. He then moved back to MD Anderson. He probably missed the uh, the warm weather and uh, the Tex-Mex down there. Uh, returned again uh, to MD Anderson in 2003. And three, but then returned back to the University of Ottawa in 2011 as the professor of medicine and head of division of medical oncology. Since completing his term as the division head in 2019, he has continued to teach and practice oncology in Ottawa. Thank you for joining us here on the Project Purple podcast, Dr. Stewart. Well, thank you for having me. It's very much appreciated. That's a pretty extensive background. And I know we, we were talking offline before I was asking you what you prefer, the heat or the cold. And you said the cold, you'd rather shovel snow than deal with the, uh, the hurricanes in, uh, in Houston. Uh, yep. That's right. <laughs> and it, it all, it all depends what uh, you get used to. And I grew up just south of Ottawa. And as I was telling you, Ottawa is the coldest capital city in the world, but the, the trick there is just get out and enjoy it. And that's fantastic when you do. I don't think you could said that any better. I, I know uh, friends that live uh, up by the Canadian border in Minnesota, uh, north of Duluth, and you either got to embrace the the winter, or you, you got to get out. <laughs> so I think you, you you summed that up perfectly. Well, thank you for joining us on the podcast. And I know you've got you've got a very interesting. I, I am so. I say this a lot. There's a lot of these terms that I say that you'll hear me if you haven't listened to the podcast. I know our listeners probably hear this. Full disclosure here: I, I you know, we connected via email. You had sent an email about your book. I think maybe we we got a Google hit. Uh, quite honestly, but I am interested in having this conversation. Um, you have a book intended. Uh, and I know you'll talk about this for patients entitled A Short Primer on Why Cancer Still Sucks, which is available on your website and also on Amazon. This was published in April of 2022, so just a couple months back. But you've been at this for a long, long time. Uh, and I'm excited to have you on this because uh, this thing called cancer is, you know, and I know we focus a lot here uh, on pancreatic cancer, but pancreatic cancer falls under cancer. And, and I've always said, and I know you and I talked about this before we hit record is there's so much that we can learn. So I love having specialists from all different types of cancers um, on our podcast, because I think we are still in this infancy of pancreatic cancer and learning about the disease. And if there's another cancer that's doing something better, you know, we should, we should learn from that, maybe try to see if we can implement that. And I think the the definition of insanity is what doing the same thing over and over again, inspecting the same, <laughs> expecting different results, right? And I feel sometimes in this cancer world, um, you know, I've been at this at for twelve years now with pancreatic cancer, Doctor Stewart, and recently there's a couple of families that I've been uh, very attached to uh, that I've gotten to know through the foundation. 
but it's the same kind of hamster wheel that these families are on that I went through that same hamster wheel 12 years ago with my dad in terms of the, the treatments and 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 why are we still you know doing the same things we did 12 years ago um so when I saw the email come across I was like oh this is a great topic and I think timing for me personally for what I'm going through my experience I'm really excited to have you on so with that I'm going to hand over the mic to you uh, to share your background and, and get into what we're going to talk about today. And as I said before we hit record, you can go as far back as you want, um, or you could say as high level as you want. And with that, the mic is yours. Uh, yeah. So uh, I grew up uh, just south of Ottawa and went to medical school in, in Kingston, Ontario, then uh, down to MD Anderson Hospital to do my training, as you said. Um, loved it down there, but um, but. Um, uh, I like um, uh, Ottawa better, so I uh, came back up here to um, uh, in 1980, and then went back down to MD Anderson for some um, research uh, opportunities in in uh, 2003. Then back up here in uh, in 2011, and uh, um, again the um, uh, so I've I've experienced both the Canadian and American uh, healthcare systems, and as I say in chapter 14 of the book. Uh, I love them both and I hate them both. Um, uh, they both have um, uh, have major pluses. They both have major uh, disadvantages, and uh, and uh, nobody's quite uh, quite got it, got it right yet as far as um, what's the best way to uh, to manage healthcare systems. But I have pros and cons to both of them. But uh, love what I'm doing here, and uh, and uh, and um, I just uh, plan to keep on doing it for as long as I can. Um, the uh, I wrote the book because. Of all the questions my patients keep on asking me about cancer, uh, so that um, it was written to uh, answer many of those questions, um, and uh, and also to address systems issues. So uh, each chapter in the book, um, again called a short primer and why cancer still sucks, available through Amazon Books. Uh, each chapter starts with a short primer section that's uh, uh, written in um, in uh, a way that um, anybody without a healthcare background can uh, can understand it, and then a further detailed section that goes into quite a bit more detail with references. Uh, and most people without a, a, ba- a medical background could still understand it, but a bit more technical. And uh, the way I, I, I stayed honest to that is that. The major people that uh, proofread the book uh, were my wife, who's an interior decorator, and my stepdaughter, who's a, an elementary school teacher. So if they told me I was uh, getting off track as far as being able to understand. Uh, then we fixed that so that uh, that people could uh, uh, could understand it. And I tried to cover the full spectrum of cancer. So uh, why it's so common um, uh, and what we can uh, do about that. Um, what um, uh, the pros and cons of screening or the limitations of screening. Uh, how cancer causes symptoms. How it makes people feel so sick, um, different uh, treatment options and their limitations and side effects, uh, complementary and alternative therapies and why they're complementary and alternative rather than mainstream, um, oncology myths and legends, which is uh, things that we think we know, but uh, where we really got get it wrong and uh, how that slows us down. Um, then uh, in the systems, uh, uh, why it takes so long to develop new anti-cancer therapies and the price we pay for that, um, uh, what's slowing us down, what we need to, to do to speed it up. Um, and, um, and COVID has uh, proven to us that we can speed things up if we, if we put our mind to it and we really need to in, in cancer. And also why the, why the therapies are so expensive. And it's exactly the same things that slow down progress that also make the therapies more expensive and what we um, need to do about that. And then I go into um, a comparison of the 
Canadian versus um, American healthcare systems and, uh, uh, and uh, what they both do well, what they do both do not so well, and uh, what both would have to do to, uh, to, uh, to make things better. And then the last chapter is on the future of cancer care um, and uh, just um, how things are changing very rapidly, and they're going to keep on changing rapidly. Uh, so um, you mentioned about uh, how we keep on doing the same things. Uh, in fact, um, that's true to a certain extent, except that uh, that we keep on uh, leaping ahead in different areas as well. And uh, the trick is that we'll keep on uh, uh, thrusting and pairing and trying to find out the right way to do things and hitting roadblocks. And then we'll find a weakness in the cancer uh, that permits us to leap ahead in one area. And then we see whether that's uh, relevant to other areas of cancer <clears throat> to try it there and uh, so that we can try to make advances also. So one of the things with pancreatic cancer uh, is that uh, with so-called targeted therapies, so far they do not work uh, most places. Uh, so it's not like adenocarcinoma of the lung where suddenly we had major advances starting 20 years ago and malignant melanoma where we suddenly has a, a major advances starting uh, 20 years ago. Uh, or um, uh, And it's not like um, also immunotherapy. Uh, but again, that's been uh, major advances in, in, um, in many areas of cancer, but not in pancreatic cancer. Uh, but we know it's just a matter of us um, uh, just um, uh, keeping prodding. So that, for example, um, uh, pancreatic cancer, about 76% of patients have something called a K-RAS mutation. And there are many different uh, variants of K-RAS mutation. Uh, so there's one that's common in lung cancer uh, that is not common in pancreatic cancer, but we can now target it. Uh, so the one, but now we know at least we can we can target KRAS, uh, so that uh, people are trying all sorts of strategies now uh, to try to uh, to um, be able to target uh, the different uh, versions of um, of KRAS, and we know that that could have a huge impact in uh, pancreatic cancer uh, once we uh, once we hit that, uh, and also while the the current immune checkpoint inhibitors that uh, that were uh, that we're using in lung cancer and melanoma uh, tend not to work well in pancreatic cancer. Uh, there are 13 different immune checkpoints, and so far we've only tar really targeted two of them. And a huge amount of effort uh, out there to try to target the other ones. And it is a definite possibility that one of those uh, could uh, prove um, highly useful in, in pancreatic cancer. So, uh, so right now it, um, it, uh, it, um, it doesn't look good in pancreatic cancer, but we know that that could, um, uh, could change very rapidly, and it could just be one small advance in one area uh, that looks completely unrelated, but in fact, it, has, it ends up uh, because of the backdoor effect of that, um, that um, um, advance uh, that, um, that it could have uh, uh, huge, um, uh, huge implications. Um, and um, so the, actually, I, I end the book actually with uh, my, my favorite poem that, um, that is called Say Not the Struggle Not Availeth. And the last verse of that poem says, um, and not by eastern windows only, when daylight comes, comes in the light. In front, the, the sun climbs slow, how slowly, but westward look, the land is bright. Uh, same thing. I think it looked like we're uh, making very slow progress, uh, but just what we're learning and uh, just one more bit of information that uh, could suddenly transform that into uh, a major, a major leap forward. Uh, so that I think it's going to be a long time uh, still before we're curing metastatic cancer. Uh, but I think that we've been getting better and better and better at controlling them uh, and at least uh, uh, offering quality of life and symptom improvement and uh, prolongation of life expectancy uh, with um, uh, with uh, therapies. And, uh, and that's going to uh, keep on going. And uh, I don't know if whether our ability to cure them 
uh, whether that's going to come next year or 10 years from now or whether it's going to take us 50 years. Uh, we, we won't know until we've done it. Uh, and we won't know until uh, we've hit that final, final thing that, uh, uh, that uh, we're able to uh, actually convert a um, uh, major benefit uh, in some cancers into into cure. So uh, again, I don't know whether that's going to be one year or 10 years or 50 years, but we just keep plugging along. Um, actually, I also point out in the book um, uh, that uh, my mentor, um, the um, MLJ Freireich, uh, uh, the great cancer pioneer MLJ Freireich, he had Freireich's laws. And one of Freireich's laws was that the only people who come close to um, predicting the future are the science fiction writers. And that was underpredicting rather than overpredicting. And at the time that he told us back, uh, back in the 1970s, none of us thought we'd be walking around with phones in our pockets, but we would no longer need a map because a computer in our car would be talking to a satellite. That was just science fiction. But if you can imagine it, then it may be possible to do it. So the, the important thing is to keep on imagining it and to keep on going after it. And, um, and uh, we will make progress. Wow. That was uh so I've been taking notes, Dr. Stewart, and, and that was a lot. Uh, but I want to thank you first for, for sharing that. And I want to dissect some of these pieces that you just mentioned. And, it, and there's parts there that I, could not agree with you more. And then there's parts here that uh, I'd love to hear more. And so that's why I'm going to, my my role here is I'm going to pull out things that I, I really think that are kind of trigger points um, that I'd love to talk kind of further with. Before we get there, I got to ask probably the obvious question here. Maybe our audience is either watching or listening is probably thinking themselves. Why write a book and I phrase it this way, I always talk about this. There's like a tipping point. Was there a tipping point at one point? You know, you're in your career, you're doing this, you're seeing patients, you're doing research. Um, I know you've got a lot of experience um, in research interest in, you know, anti-cancer agents, pharmacology, new drug development, um, dysfunctional regulation and clinical, tri clinical trial designs um, on the rate of clinical research projects. At progress and the huge cost of clinical clinical research dysfunctions. So you you've dove into all these topics throughout your career, but was there a tipping point or was there something that said, "All right, I want to write a book because I want to get this out there, I want people to know." Um, if you look back, and hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? Like we can always kind of say, like, "Oh, it's because of this or because of that." But was there something that happened that said? one day, like, hey, I'm going to write this book? Or was this something that you always had in the back of your mind that it was part of the plan <laughs> as part of all this work that you've been doing over the years? Uh, so that um, I... I, I uh... I've been, had been telling my wife for 20 years that I was going to write a book for patients and, uh, then just never quite got around to it. Uh, then in the early 2019, I took a three month sabbatical, uh, where I just uh, sat, um, uh, up at a farm in the bush, um, and, uh, and worked on uh, stuff like this. So, so I started writing the book, um, uh, then. So got started and, and it was really, uh, there were two, reasons for doing it. One is that uh, uh, all my patients, many of my patients tell me that the worst thing of all is uncertainty. The worst thing is not knowing. Uh, they tell me that uncertainty is worse than bad news. If they've got bad news, at least then they they know what they do, they, what they have to do. They, they have to start dealing with it. Uncertainty it's uh, is very very difficult, very unsettling. And so that, and they tell me they would tell me that the more they knew about it, uh, the better. To not uh, sugarcoat anything, not not hide, try to try to hide any details, 
Um, if it's bad, let them know, and then let's figure out what we're going to try to do about that. Uh, so it was to educate um, uh, patients uh, as a part of what I want to do to try to help them. Uh, the other part of it is that I first started writing about uh, uh, issues with clinical research um, back about 12 years ago. Um, and uh, so I wrote papers that were very well received, but then just didn't uh, didn't um, uh, accomplish anything. Uh, where uh, all the things that we need to change about clinical research uh, to uh, to make uh, to make it possible to make much faster advances. And um, and for one uh, for example, the uh, the uh, uh, there was one uh, one paper we wrote to more recently where we just calculated the number of life years lost. And one life year is one person being alive in that one year. The number of life years lost worldwide per year of delay in getting a new anti-cancer drug approved. And, and the number was staggering. Uh, so um, uh, 80,000 life years lost per year of delay uh, in getting the drug approved. And because it takes an average of 12 years to get a, take a drug from discovery to, uh, to approval, uh, it um, was about a million life years lost. Um, per, for each of the other drugs that, uh, that we looked at in the time from discovery to approval. And that was staggering. Uh, but when I, when I submitted that uh, paper to different journals, uh, the first eight journals turned it down uh, before the ninth one published it. And what the reviewers said were things like, these numbers are so huge, they cannot possibly be real. <clears throat> Even though anybody could use uh, have access to exactly the same numbers I used and do exactly the same calculation. <clears throat> other reviewers said, well, the, uh, the, the problems are, are uh, too complicated. We can't fix them anyway, so it doesn't make any difference if we know this, and we can't fix this. And other reviewers said that the drugs are so expensive that most people will not be able to access them anyway, so this doesn't make any difference. Uh, who needs to know this? Uh, so that, that astonished me. Uh, and also, I, I published an op-ed in, the, um, in one of our newspapers up here <coughs> on, on this, and actually no reaction. So I pointed out that uh, that the problem is it's like what Stalin said. Uh, Joseph Stalin once said, uh, "If one man dies, it's a tragedy. A thousand it's statistics, and it's just statistics that everybody is numb to, and they they don't see the reality of it until they're in the middle of it themselves, and uh, and then suddenly it becomes very real. But then they're isolated, and, <clears throat> and it becomes very difficult." And the, the just COVID was a perfect illustration of the fact that we can't solve these problems because in the past it would take um, a seven to twelve years to develop the vaccine, and the fastest fastest one ever was mumps vaccine at four years. Then COVID comes along, and because everybody decides it's important, uh, it's solved within uh, one year. And I don't think we'll ever uh, be able to develop a new anti-cancer drug within one year because of the complexities. But I think we can do it within three or four years. I, I think we can do much better than what we're doing. And if we do that, then we save lives, we alleviate suffering. And also, because it's exactly the same thing that uh, make things take too long, that drive up uh, costs, uh, then we, it becomes possible, it becomes feasible to start bringing down the massive costs of these new therapies as well. So... Two things came up as you mentioned those two items, and I want to—I don't want to spend a lot of time on here, but I think the one thing that I've seen here is that you know patients not knowing, and there's so much uncertainty. It's almost like no one talks about death, no one talks about cancer, right? It's not like you go to a cocktail party. Actually, we're in the space, right? You and I are in the cancer space, so when we go out, you know, people, oh, how's work? Well, you know, they know like this is this is what we do, right? But the general public, let's say ninety, you know, ninety-five percent of, of the general public out there in the world, they're not talking about cancer. 
I, I do think the one thing that has happened over the last maybe 10, 15 years is, you know, this whole concept of, you know, healthy diet or exercising. Um, and not so much in, I think some of it now is starting now. I mean, there's, there's, and I'm not making this stuff up, but there's data out there that says like, Hey, if you smoke, like you're going to get cancer. If you drink, if you're obese, if you eat certain foods, the odds are stacked against you to get these chronic illnesses and cancers. Right. So I, I think there is somewhat of a shift, but then again, people live their lives. They, they kind of do what they have to do. They're all, everyone's busy. We're all busy, right? We've got all these distractions. And so, but my point here is I think no one, no one really prepares for cancer. Um, no one, prepare, no one wants to talk about it cause it's got this negative thing. So it's not, I mean, I guess, and I remember when I was in the insurance business, like Aflac had these like cancer policies and, you know, you, I remember one time the Aflac guy coming in and saying, well, you know, this would be a bait, a great, you know, uh, add on to your life insurance clients because, you know, Life insurance pays when they die. This cancer policy pays if they get sick and have cancer. And you know, you pull on those strings, um, and then maybe that's when the conversation is is talked about, right? But that that then it's gone, right? And then you know, you're if you're the general public, you're paying for this policy every month, and then if you get sick, you got it, right? So I, I think that's one thing. Like you know, no one it's such taboo, right? And there's such a negative connotation around all cancers, and no one really talks about it. Um, and then my second thing here, and, and just hearing you talk about like the papers and the data, and I love your analogy that you used, um, you know, about you know one person dying or you know a thousand people. I think like it's hard. It, I, I wrote down here system, and this is where you know, I I I, I don't know if the system has failed us, Doctor Stewart, in the sense that. You know, we've been doing and we've been practicing, and this is kind of a bigger question, and and maybe we dive into this later on as we go through these topics. But I don't know if the system is primed to help change this, or if the system is just what it is, and it's hard. And, and I'm not trying to point blame on a particular person, but maybe the system is just so big that it's really hard, and sometimes you need something. And this is my hope, like a pandemic. Like you said, where we realize, like, hey, you know, this this development of drugs can happen in a very short period of time, if you get everyone in line, right? If you get government, pharma, the the general public, you know, on board all at the same time, then we can move mountains. But I don't know if for cancer, if there's enough um, push, if there's enough people. Um, I mean, I, I guess we'd have to unify all the cancers. But to your point, that you just your latter point where, you know, I don't think we could have a vaccine for all cancers because all cancers are so complex and they're so different. And some things have worked really well. Like you said, immunology, right? Like there's some immunotherapy trials that work excellent in other cancers, but for some reason in pancreatic cancer, they just don't work. Like it just hasn't, it just hasn't happened. So to, to say like, there's the one size fits all pill or vaccine or shot that people can take that will cure cancers, all cancers. I don't know if the system is is ready for that or if the, the system is willing to accept that. But also then we have that complexity of all cancers being really, really unique in some way that I don't think that's a reality. Yeah, so uh, you're absolutely right uh, that uh, the uh, 
the cancer is not one disease, it's a thousand small diseases. And there are some commonalities and many differences. Uh, so the general principles, if we find a general principle that works in one, then if we apply the same general principles, then that can potentially help us uh, uh, make uh, make advances. And it's also, it's not a smooth continuum that every day things just get a little bit better. As we go hitting a, a brick wall for a period of time, and then we jump, and then we then we then we we're at a higher level, and then we go for a period of time, again, not to accomplish anything, and then we jump again, uh, just by certain Serendipity, uh, and just by individual uh, new bits of knowledge that suddenly make a, a, a give us huge insight and uh, help us uh, really do things. Now, as far as the systems are concerned, uh, you're absolutely right. It's not one person's uh, problem. Uh, this is something that we all got into together. And um, and uh, the and um, my chapter uh, uh, chapter twelve speed bumps in the autobahn. Um, I find out that uh, there's a, a thousand speed bumps uh, that slow us down, and every one of those speed bumps is there for a reason. It was very much justified to put it there, uh, but uh, altogether they're slowing things down. People tell me, well, uh, what's the one thing you'd fix to make things better? And I said, well, if you have a freeway with a thousand speed bumps on it, if you take out one speed bump, that's not going to make any difference. You have to tackle the uh, the entire thing, and and part of the reason, part of the problem is that there have been lots of problems with clinical research and drug development in the past, uh, where mistakes were made, or there were uh, there were uh, misleading things, or 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 uh, patients were harmed, and these speed bumps. So the regulation is absolutely essential uh, to uh, to uh, keep things right. Uh, but when the regulations were put in place to solve the problem that was identified, it did not. They did not. None of them took into consideration the impact they would have on slowing things down. Uh, and so it's like you have a <clears throat> a freeway with uh, uh, lots of traffic accidents. Uh, and um, and everybody's concerned about the number of people getting killed from traffic accidents. So what's the what's the um, uh, what's the solution? Well, you make the speed the speed limit five miles per hour, and bang, you you solve the problem. No more deaths from traffic accidents. But suddenly, you've got other huge problems uh, and uh, that you have to address. And so the analogy again I use is the autobahn in Germany. I don't know whether you've ever driven on the autobahn, uh, mm-hmm. but it's uh, it's got um, um, uh, large areas with unlimited speed limits, so you can drive as fast as you want to. And you might be out there driving uh, 100 miles per hour, but somebody will, will pass you going 150 miles an hour in their big uh, BMW or their big uh, uh, Mercedes. Uh, uh, and yet, it's got one of the lowest lowest traffic fatality rates. In, the, in Europe, and that's because we've got smart regulation, uh, and that's what we need. We need to have a, a complete look at this and, and create smart regulation uh, that permits rapid progress with, um, while at the same time um, uh, uh, protecting people. And that's what the uh, the whole push for the COVID vaccines did: permits uh, permitted rapid progress, but safely. Uh, and we have to make this uh, a, a a top priority for all lethal diseases. I have no problem at all if it takes years to uh, develop a, a new treatment for acne or hemorrhoids or constipation. No problem at all if it takes years for that. But if you've got a lethal disease where you're looking down the gun barrel, uh, then we need things to happen much, much, much faster. And, and you're absolutely right. That the problem is that people don't understand until they're in the middle of it. They don't understand how bad things are, that, uh, that um, uh, how, how much things will slow down or how, how difficult it can be to get access to a promising new drug uh, because of clinical trials, the exclusion criteria and the clinical trials may mean that only 5% of people uh, that uh, with cancer in North America ever make it out to a clinical trial because the uh, the rules are just uh, unreasonably tight in how they're, in how they're uh, set up. 
so we need to uh, we need to tackle it. Uh, there's a uh, a cancer advocate uh, whose name is Louise Binder, uh, but years before she was a cancer advocate, she was an AIDS a- a- advocate, an AIDS activist, and uh, and she's pointed out that the big problem with cancer is cancer patients are just too damn polite, and uh, points out that uh, with AIDS people were mad. There was a, an identifiable group uh, that um, were disenfranchised and they'd been um, picked on in the past, and so uh, they felt very angry and uh, because they moved this forward as a group and managed to move things very, very rapidly. Uh, so whether it's moving it forward rapidly like that or moving it forward rapidly as a population because of concern about AIDS, that just means that if we put our mind to it, we can do that. These are not insolvable problems. Um, but part of the reason for reading the book was that uh, I wanted to get it out there to people, uh, to everybody, uh, that we do need to reach this tipping point uh, where it becomes very important to move things through uh, forward rapidly. And we have to make sure that we do not jeopardize safety or patient confidentiality or, or, uh, or consent, uh, or anything like that uh, in the process. We don't want to do that, but we know that we can uh, change things to, uh, to make it much faster, much cheaper. Um, and, uh, and, uh, at the same time that we're, uh, maintaining all, all these other things. And, and we just need to make this a priority. That's, that's, uh, my point, we need to make it a priority so that, uh, so that if I talk to you 10 years from now about pancreatic cancer, there's still not, uh, there's still no major advances. I want, I want those advances this year or next year. Uh, but we're going to have to, we're going to have to really, uh, to change our approach to things, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to make this happen. And, and, and one of the problems is that, uh, uh so that uh, many years ago, uh, they, they had uh, international harmonization. Uh, of the approach so that, um, uh, so that, um, if, uh, new data were generated in, um, in one country, uh, they could be used to approve the, the data in other countries. So that harmonization was great, except that the things that are holding, um, uh, research back in one country are holding it back worldwide because uh, this is a system that, uh, that we've uh, set up. Uh, so we need to set up the harmonization to permit rapid progress. And also you'll <clears throat> have individuals uh, and groups. Uh, that um, want to move things forward rapidly. But if the FDA, for example, uh, tries to change things to make things faster, uh, there are um, uh, 10 other agencies, United States government agencies, uh, that will put in another regulation uh, that uh, that will slow it down and uh, that uh, so that we we accidentally get it in each other's way uh, that um, and um, and prevent each other uh, from uh, leapfrogging this and, and really getting ahead. So this is what we've got to recognize uh, and this is what we've, uh, uh, we've really done to tackle. And I know that President Biden has um the cancer is very, very important to him. Uh, so that type of, um, of, um, high level commitment is essential. <clears throat> but even uh, with him, uh, he has to understand this is not a funding issue. This is not a research funding issue. Uh, yes, funding is important. Uh, but this is a, a systems issue in how we do it. Uh, and the things that make it cost so much and the things that uh, slow us down, those are the things that, uh, that must be tackled. So that was a lot. Um, I think the one the one thing I'll throw in here, and and uh, I, I do have two questions here. Um, I remember I was able, I was fortunate to go to Washington D.C., and you, we brought up the politics here, so we'll go down that rabbit hole real quick. <laughs> I try to. Uh, I was able to go to D.C. in 2012, and we saw our state legislation. We saw a lot of legislators that day. Um, it was like a marathon day, literally. And I remember one aide pulling me aside and said, hey, listen, if you're the loudest, most obnoxious group 
you will get stuff done. Yeah. Um, and I and from that day on, I've always said, like, hey, if we're gonna lobby and we're gonna and we don't do any legislative lobbying here in the States, I, I honestly think it's a waste of time. The other thing that I I realize, and and this is why I think it's a waste of time because uh, our size and also for where we focus there's other groups that do that which i think is awesome because they have the bandwidth they have the size and they focus they really and they are entrenched they are working with nih and stuff like that but that's not our mission here um but the other thing that i realized is that the this aide said well tomorrow the firefighters are coming in after you leave, it was like the fraternal brotherhood of the unions. Like everyone's grabbing, right? DC here in the United States, DC is this this ultimate grab of money, and it's whoever's the loudest and whoever has the strongest lobbying group that can get stuff done. And I and I think that's something that uh, again we don't get involved in personally. I mean, I get involved in it a little bit personally because I know a lot of our our state elected legislators. Uh, but it is it is tough, man. It is really, really tough. But I do think to what you said, reading between the lines here, um, and I believe this, is that we've got to have, in order for us to create change and dramatic change, you have to have everyone working together. And that starts with the uh, administration, the FDA, the NIH, the politicians, the pharma's, and then you know the medical institutions, and then also philanthropy. You know, if you have everyone aligned, you know, great things can happen. Um, but I do feel very strongly that um, to your point, there last was there is some disconnect here, at least here in the United States. Like, you know, we've got patients begging for clinical trials, and and this is a. a Probably another rabbit hole that we won't go down is like, do people really understand? I think here in the United States, people think clinical trials are miracles, and that's not necessarily the case, right? Um, there's a process of clinical trials, and I've talked to many pharmaceutical companies about, you know, helping get patients into clinical trials, and I feel like here in the United States, they do a very poor job, pharma, of explaining and educating patients about clinical trials, and I think if there was more education. Um, I think more people would be open to getting into these clinical trials. Um, and I think that's a part where we kind of fail here in the US. Uh, but then you have, you know, the the rigorous requirements of these clinical trials or the timing of, you know, new drugs to get to market and how that process is established and whether it's the FDA, the NIH, or you know, where those guidelines are placed, I think is is really tricky. And again, if they're not all on the same page, I don't think things move as fast. And I think that's some of the barriers, as you've mentioned, you know, you hit a wall, whether it's a clinical trial or research, and then you've got to wait for things to open up. And then, you know, you progress, hit a wall, progress, hit a wall. Um, I know for patients listening, I mean, that that's a really tough thing to, to keep telling them to, hey, hang in there, you know, stay in the game. You know, I know you're beat up right now, but maybe in six months there'll be, you know, another enhancement or advancement in treatment or potentially a new drug therapy that might be available. A lot of people don't have six months, right? They probably don't have three months potentially. So it's it's frustrating. I know from the patient advocate side to to, to hear that, but unfortunately that's just the way the process is right now. Um I got two questions that I want to bring up, these these two points. And I'm going to start at, at the top. I know, and this is probably, you know, an over, you know, the first topic is in in, in your book, the first 
topic that you bring up is why is cancer so common? So not, and we don't want to give all this away, but maybe sum this up, Dr. Stewart is why are cancer, why is cancer so common today in 2022? Not just in Canada, but all over the world. I mean, we're seeing this kind of explode everywhere, not just in certain parts of the world. Yeah. So the, the number one factor driving cancer is just getting one day older, uh, just because in your body, you've got about 37 trillion cells, 100 billion of them divide every day, and there's an average of three mutations per cell division. So every one of us just living our normal life, that's um, 300 billion new mutations every day. Unfortunately, many of them are not of much consequence. So, uh, so they can be repaired or they uh, lead to the cell death or what's called senescence, but the cell can no longer divide. It's damaged, can no longer divide, but it's uh, still can function. Um, and, uh, so just getting another day older is the, the number one driving factor. So I point out in the book that it's been darkly observed that the, the best way to avoid getting cancer is to die young or something else. <laughs> but not a good strategy. So then, then uh, anything that you do that increases the number of mutations uh, will increase your risk of cancer. So that's where smoking comes in, uh, drinking alcohol, um, high-fat diet, being uh, overweight, inflammation, um, uh, asbestos exposure, uh, air pollution, uh, all those things increase the number of, um, of mutations. So that increases the risk. And also, if you have more cells dividing, so again, being overweight or uh, being on, on um, uh, different uh, hormones, for example, that will drive increased cell division, then uh, those things increase the risk of, of cancer. Um, and so, and some things actually appear to actively possibly reduce the risk of cancer. Uh, so that um, uh, members of the uh, lettuce and, um, and the cabbage and broccoli and Brussels sprouts family, for example, uh, eating lots of fresh fruits and vegetables um, uh, and may help uh, reduce the, 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 the risk of cancer. Exercise does. Um, so, uh, so lots of things that, uh, that uh, can uh, reduce the risk of it, but, uh, but not, nothing's perfect. Actually, you can find out that um, I mentioned about cells becoming damaged and becoming senescent. Uh, so that permits them to still survive and uh, to support life, uh, but um, but uh, they can no longer divide. Uh, it's been pointed out uh, that the process of aging is actually a protection against cancer. So me looking uh, old and gray and flabby uh, is because um, of the, all these cells have become senescent. They're still uh, supporting my life, but it can no longer divide uh, because they're damaged, so they cannot develop into a cancer cell. Uh, so, but um, uh, just uh, that's the important thing. So, one of the things that the uh, again uh, the uh, uh, it's impossible to avoid everything that uh, could increase your risk, and uh, and the important thing is um, is to uh, just uh, uh, use some uh, uh, some. Uh, uh, just uh, not to do too much of it. Uh, so as, as my wife keep, uh, kept pointing out to me, uh, it's important that we all live our lives and enjoy them, not to lock ourselves in some, um, in some room that uh, where we're protected from everything. Uh, then life's no fun. But uh, how can we minimize the risk while still having a uh, very full, enjoyable uh, life? So, uh, so you drink one glass of wine uh, a week instead of um, a bottle a day, or you only have steak uh, uh, once or twice a month rather than uh, eating it every night, uh, uh, those types of things that uh, uh, that you do, just um, use uh, some control uh, in limiting exposure, uh, because uh, then uh, then uh, the uh, if you limit exposure, that reduces uh, reduces your risk. So I remember reading something a couple of years back that said by the time you reach. I think it was like, and this was based on U.S. statistics. I think by like eighty-two, the odds of either having 
cancer, some type of cancer or cardiovascular disease, like, you know, pick, pick your, pick your poison basically, right? Like exponentially, I forget what the data was, but you know, the odds are so high. Um, and, you know, hearing you say aging and, and, you know, that this is like, you know, I think humans have been trying to live forever, forever, right? Uh, trying to, you know, we go back to this, this fallacy of the fountain of youth, right? Uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the old fiction or the, the, the story, right? Of, uh, of finding the fountain of youth or the Holy Grail, right? Uh, of finding, you know, the Holy Grail and being able to drink and, and living forever, you know, is on everyone's mind. And I think I go back to what I originally said, you know, when we start up, you know, um, talking about cancer, you know, no one talks about death, right? And so maybe this is just a, this topic. And and I guess I speak from this from a, a point of, um, I don't think anyone's ever prepared, but I think maybe just in my experience, I've, I've experienced a lot of death in the last 12 years of people that I've become fairly close with and, and you know, naturally losing my dad. Uh, not that there's an acceptance of that, but, you know, life is, there's no infinite you know, no one lives forever, right? There's no, there, and, and we never know, right? Today could be my last day or, or anyone's last day for that matter. So you have to live every day like it's your last. But on that note is you don't, you know, you don't go out and have a, a, a like to your, your point, you don't have a full bottle of wine every day just because you think today is going to be your last day, right? Uh, everything in moderation. But I think also my point here is like, we, we have, a, I think society as a whole in the world, we have this very hard time of, of dealing with death and the reality of that. Um, and I think that's part of the, the equation here, possibly, um, why have people have such a hard time with that and then why people want to try to live as long as they can. Um, which some things are out of our control, right? Um, I mean, I'm sure you've met many patients that have done all the right things, have led a healthy lifestyle, have had a, a healthy diet, exercise daily, um, and still get cancers, right? And we don't know why that happens. Um, but, you know, eventually we all will, will succumb to something, um, and aging is a natural process. So I, I think to your point, why it's so common, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, of aging, like I said, I go back to that statistic that I remember early on in this career. And it was, it was so obvious to me that at some point you're either going to get cancer or heart disease based on, you know, your age, uh, which is just the reality of what it is and where we are today. Yeah, so I've been told that, or I remember hearing on the program, uh, that Dustin Hoffman plans to have on his tombstone. I knew this was going to happen. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so, so the, um, so that, uh, yeah, so that uh, all the things that, um, that increase the risk of cancer, uh, also because they can damage cells and make them senescent, they also uh, increase the risk of damage to the uh, heart and other organs and increase aging. So the, the healthier lifestyles, uh, you reduce the risk of, um, of both of those things. But as far as living forever, uh, I always remember a colleague who was in his uh, 60s at the time, and he told, uh, told me that um, it was only when he first saw his first grandchild that he, he realized the importance of his own mortality. Uh, that because if people didn't die, then you couldn't have grandchildren. Uh, there would not be room for everybody. Uh, so this is uh, so. Uh, so this is the importance of one's uh, own mortality is uh, uh, to make room for all the children and grandchildren, great grandchildren that uh, uh, that uh, that uh, that you want to have. 
Uh, but then, so if we can't live forever, how do we do it as healthily as possible? And uh, again, uh, avoid the things that, uh, that uh, to the extent possible, that uh, can cause a lot of uh, mutations and, and damage, but while you're still trying to have, um, have a, a, a good time. Um, so it's like if you go out uh, skiing, uh, you, um, uh, you, that's exercise, so you can uh, help prolong your life expectancy, but then if you get to max and break your leg, then that's a, that's a downside. So, so everything we do has an upside and a downside. Correct. Correct. My last point here that I wanted to bring up on the book, um, and then I got two questions for you, and then we're going to share with our audience uh, where they can learn more, get the book. But you mentioned the future of cancer care, and, and I'd love to talk about in a perfect scenario, or well, well, we'll bring that question up after, but where do you think the future of cancer care is, and where do we go? Uh, so I think, uh, no, research is happening very rapidly. So I go to four or five major meetings a year. Uh, so every three months, I'll go to a meeting and there'll be major new things happening since the last one. Uh, so that, um, so that um, uh, this is, uh, so things are happening very rapidly. So, uh, so that, and as I said, uh, we don't, we, we can't predict where the next big, um, uh, big advance is going to be because it's just going to be something that somebody noticed that they down test something and it uh, works uh, ends up working spectacularly better than what we've uh, what we've done before. Uh, so that the important thing is that we keep on doing research, and um, and so this is uh, one of the big one of the huge problems with is with the cost of uh, new drugs. Uh, the uh, that um, uh, governments and, other, and uh, payers are starting to uh, find it difficult to pay for them. And if we stop paying for them, and uh, that uh, decreases the profits, uh, the profits drive investment. Uh, that investment uh, drives progress. Uh, so we but, so we need to bring down the cost while not uh, bringing down the the impetus to keep doing the research that uh, is so important and uh, at at uh, driving things uh, forward. But uh, there'll be a number of things. Like for example, right now we give uh, we might give adjuvant chemotherapy after somebody has surgery to reduce the risk of cancer coming back. By five or ten years from now, we will not be doing that anymore uh, because the current research indicates that if you take a blood test a month or so after the surgery, if you find um, if you do not find any circulating tumor cells, then there are none, and it's highly likely that the patient is cured. If you find some, then the cancer is going to show up again in a few months or a year or two, and those are the people that uh, need treatment. So that's going to be that could uh, could change things in a major way. Uh, the uh, trying to harness all the parts of the immune system and not just the parts that we can currently um, uh, can currently harness uh, that could have huge uh, beneficial impact. Uh, also, the uh, ways of designing new drugs uh, so that um, uh, there is something called bites by specific T cell engagers that are antibodies that one arm latches onto a T cell, which is one of the immune cells. The other arm latches onto a tumor cell, brings them close together, so the T cell can uh, can kill uh, the tumor cell, uh, and um, and so uh, uh, there's a, a potential huge for, uh, future uh, for for those things. Uh, so lots and lots and lots of different things uh, that uh, that could make a big difference uh, in the not too distant future. Um, and as I said, can't predict it because. 
uh, every time that we make an advance in one area, we think uh, we've we've got it. Now it's going to work everywhere. Like the targeted therapies when they started working in uh, in non-sponsored lung cancer, adenocarcinoma lung, and uh, back in uh, 1999, 2000, uh, we thought, okay, now this is going to work everywhere. But it doesn't work in squamous cell lung cancer or small cell lung cancer uh, or pancreatic cancer. Uh, so that, um, uh, but at least we've made progress in one area. And so we have to then find out why it's not working there and what the other uh, approaches are. So, so, uh, so I can't say what it's going to look like. I can say for sure it's going to look different. Simply because when I look at um, at the past forty six years since I went into uh, oncology training, things are so much different now than they were back forty six years ago, uh, and uh, compared to. Five years ago, things were so much different now than they were five years ago. Uh, so I know that things are going to keep on changing rapidly as long as we keep on investing uh, in the research, as long as we keep um, uh, keep that, that investment research, we are going to keep on uh, making progress. So powerful. You know, I remember reading something recently, too. Um you know, we're really good at acute care, right? If you break your arm, uh, you're having a baby, um, you go to a hospital, and this is pretty much in North America, well, Canada and the US, you get phenomenal care. Uh, you know, people blow out their ACLs. You have these star athletes, these world-class athletes across the world, you know, they have these major injuries. They're back on a soccer field, a football field, a baseball diamond, basketball court, you know, within months, right? Which is Which is amazing, right? Where, you know, 10 years ago, you know, I, I just know American here, like, you know, Tommy John surgery, you know, you, you blow out your rotator cuff, you were done, right? You blew out an ACL, you're done, right? Uh, now these, these athletes, I mean, they, they come back so quickly. And, and I think our system has gotten really good with acute care. And, you know, I know we, we beat up at, uh, I, I say we, I've, you know, maybe on this episode and, and on other episodes, you know, I, I'm very critical about our cancer system here in the United States. Cause as I said, it's frustrating, right? You know, I went through it with my dad and then, you know, I've got a couple of families that I go through, but we have made significant progress. And I, I think to your point here is we've got to keep pushing. Right. And there is this balance. Um, you know, I, I know I was in the for-profit world before I started project purple. And, you know, pharma is in a not, you know, they don't do things for free, right? Like there's a, there's a risk reward, right? And there's got to be enough money in it for them to continue to do this because they're not going to keep doing these things to fail, to lose money. Um, but we've got to kind of keep pushing for the research and for the advances. So I, I think that was just such a powerful thing that you just mentioned, because I, I think, you know, Again, we are getting better. If you look back, things have gotten better. I think your analogy of surgery, right? Like you just look at where we are with surgery and you know how better we've gotten just in our space and pancreatic cancer. You know, the percentage of people like having major complications from a Whipple, I know over the years has gone down dramatically. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, people had massive complications with the Whipple surgery. Now we do them robotically. So advances are happening. I know they're not happening as fast as we want them, but we have to keep that pedal on the gas pedal to keep pushing for research and advancement and funding from all parties. Um, I got two last questions here. And the first one, these are loaded, as I say, um, if you've listened to the podcast and for those that are listening, you know, I like these loaded questions. Um, there's no right or wrong to either one of these questions here that I'm going to ask you. Um, but the first one is, if you could create a perfect world in, in your experience, Dr. Stewart, 
what would be the perfect world for healthcare if if we could and and if we had to radically change everything, what it would look like, and what would you do at a very high level? I know we can go down. This could be a long long answer, but at a high level, what what are some things that we could do in a perfect world to uh, to change the healthcare system? Well, of course, there is no perfect world, and so that um, in the chapter fourteen of the book, I compare the American and Canadian healthcare systems. And uh, the uh, American healthcare system actually does cancer care better than the Canadian system, uh, but primary care, the Canadian system does it quite a bit better than the American uh, system. Um, they're both about the same for emergencies, but uh, uh, this is the reason that um, that uh, the United States um, has the uh, ranks 49th in the world with uh, respect to life expectancy. Uh, they're just ahead of Albania uh, is because of the fact that um, uh, that uh, the primary care does not uh, work well. So young people die of uh, things that they uh, that they shouldn't be dying from. But once Americans reach the age of 65 and have Medicare, it's, uh, it's gold-plated. And so actually, uh, cancer care uh, is better in the United States uh, than in Canada. It's good in Canada, but it just takes us even longer to get make things happen than it does uh, uh, than it does in the United States, and um, and um, and uh, uh, taking longer uh, means um, uh, means that uh, it uh, that people will die that uh, would not um, uh, have to die. So I, I did a calculation that of the eighty thousand Canadians that uh, die every year of cancer, uh, if uh, Canadians had the same rapid access to uh, cancer care as Americans, it would be 9,000 fewer cancer deaths in Canada. Uh, so, uh, but even in the United States, it depends um, uh, whether, so that uh, the, the poorest Canadians uh, do better than the poorest Americans, uh, but the richest Americans, uh, uh, the richest Canadians do not do as well as the richest Americans. And it all depends on on um, uh, healthcare resources and how they're set up and, um, and uh, uh, what um, Oh, so, so, so actually, the, um, so one of my colleagues always used to say that uh, uh, the perfect system was uh, where everybody paid uh, for things out of their own pocket, uh, because um, then they would make their own decisions about what was important, and nobody could really jack up the prices because they wouldn't be able to sell anything if, uh, if they really jacked up the prices. So, uh, of course, that's no longer, uh, that's long since not being feasible because of how expensive everything is right now. Uh, but, um, but I think that different healthcare systems have gotten different things right. So uh, there are some things that the U.S. healthcare system does well, some the Canadian healthcare system does well, some the U.K. or Germany or France or uh, or, uh, or Switzerland uh, uh, that they uh, they all uh, do some things better than uh, than others, uh, and um, so that um, uh, so that. Uh, but as far as finding a perfect one, I know if I define I try to design a perfect one, uh, that there will be something in it that will mess things up badly in one particular area. So we have to keep on working on. Um, and trying to uh, to uh, to uh, to solve the problems that we've got. So in the United States, it means trying to get um, affordable care to uh, to young people, uh, so that um, uh, so you don't have a bunch of young people dying that did not have to die because they did not have good access to primary care. Uh, in Canada, we have to do better uh, with um, uh, with uh, older people, the oldest people, uh, making sure that they can get uh, faster access to everything that uh, that uh, that they need. Powerful. My last question here, and then we're going to share with our audience where they can learn more about the book, get the book. Um, again, this is a loaded question. There's no right or wrong, but in your professional experience, how do you define cancer? What's uh, your so, definition? 
how do I define cancer? Uh, well, they're, they, I mean, the pathologists um, define it fairly clearly because we've got different categories, but it's, it's uh, cells that are growing uncontrollably uh, so that the, the usual controls that uh, make your the cells in your body just divide when they're supposed to divide, uh, those controls are, are gone. Um, and uh, so that uh, it keeps on going uh, when it shouldn't be and also can spread through the bloodstream or invade into uh, into um, other uh, uh, other tissues. Uh, so that um, that's what um, what cancer uh, cancer is. Uh, so that there are a few um, other diseases that have sort of some of the same characteristics, but really aren't cancer because uh, they don't do things that are going to be lethal, like endometriosis, for example, uh, or uh, some things um, uh, like uh, like that. Uh, but it's um, it's cells that are growing uncontrollably that are not dying when they're supposed to die, and are dividing when they should not to, should not divide. Doctor Stewart, last thing here. Where's the best place for our audience to connect, learn more about your book, uh, learn more about the work you're doing? Um, I'm not sure if that's your website, off Amazon. Let's give them that information now. Yeah, so that um, the, the best way to buy the book is through Amazon Books um, and uh, can order either hard co- copy or uh, or paperback or, or electronic. Also, electronic is uh, available through Barnes & Noble and a whole bunch of other people uh, like uh, like that. Uh, the uh, My website, uh, whycancerstillsucks.com, has a link to the different uh, places like Amazon and, and uh, all the other places that, um, uh, that uh, you can buy it, uh, like the electronic version through Apple Books. Or, uh, or even Walmart, um, or or a place like that for the uh, for the uh, for the um, uh, electronic version. Awesome, Doctor Stewart. Thank you for all your work you're doing in the cancer community, and thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. I very much appreciate um, having the opportunity to talk to you. It's awesome. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. If you like what you hear today or what you viewed here on YouTube, feel free to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thank you for listening. And until next time, please be safe. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast.